Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And on today's episode, I discuss the nine intelligences, the theory that human intelligence is actually a collection of nine different categories, and these subjects may be what separates man from the beasts. And then Brett takes a mispronunciation-fueled journey into one of Marvel's grittier Netflix properties. Seriously, this mispronunciation thing could be turned into a drinking game. Stick around after credits to hear us settle the debate. But Brett, the devil of content recommendation himself, really went to town wrapping Muay Thai ropes around his fish-shaped content suggesters and then pounding them into my desire to watch it whole. I'll just cut to the chase. We're talking about Daredevil. No Ben Affleck's allowed. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett! Josh. Whoa, that was really aggressive with your Brett. <laughs> I even did an arm pump with it. Yeah. I wanted to follow up. With a nice, how are you? <laughs> I am a shoe shiner now. That's not what I was expecting to hear. No, I, I have always wanted to be a shoe shiner. I, I guess I've always been a shoe shiner wannabe. I, I used to have mm-hmm. a really nice pair of dress shoes. Always wanted to get into just the art of making them clean and shiny. And uh, it took a while to get the kit off of Amazon because I kept I would order it to the locker and then I'd be out of town and they'd ship it back because you have like a certain number of days you can pick it up. I'd order it again and show up at the locker. I'd leave on a trip and be gone when I got back like third or fourth or fifth time. Finally, get the uh, shoe shining kit. And now my dress shoes look really shiny, really nice. The perils of shoe shinery <laughs> sounds like a hard sport to get into. <laughs> it's it's a quite pleasant experience, and I feel like my shoe will last a long time. Well, that's great. I don't think it could shine mine. They're skate shoes. I don't think it works that way. <laughs> well, you might as well try. <laughs> All right. Uh, in 18 weeks, when I finally get my shoe shine kit, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing? What's up? Uh, pretty good. Just uh, not, nothing crazy on this end. Um, in fact, there's really nothing to catch up on. I've just been doing dad stuff and, uh, you know, How's this podcast. This is my primary outlet in this world right now. Yeah. It's too cold to skydive. Yeah. Well, you could come out to Arizona. I'm about to start an epic skydive staycation. It's like Brett's dream vacation is not getting on an airplane, driving like 45 minutes, all of my friends coming to me and then tearing the sky a new air hole, like you like to say. I do love to say that. Man, that sounds awesome. I wish I could make it, man. But like I said, dad stuff. Yeah. Won't be able to travel out there at the drop of a hat. But that sounds great. Are you going to do a uh, balloon jump while you're you know, out there? I, I, it's probably required, isn't it, if I'm out at Eloy? I've, you should. I've never done a balloon jump at Eloy. It's always been like, some guy that my friend John knows that is like out in Colorado that shouldn't be, I don't know, like kind of under the table sort of deal. One of the first skydives we ever really did together was a balloon jump. That's true. Actually, we ended up on the news. We did. Doing a balloon the news. Jump. <laughs> yeah. So we were, we were doing a balloon jump and we saw a helicopter out, you know, it, it wasn't on the horizon per se, but it was out, you know, a couple miles away from us. And it was kind of, 
following us the whole time. And then later it came to our attention that that was a news helicopter and they had filmed our skydive from outside. So we all went on the news and brought the footage from the skydive and they interviewed our awkward asses about <laughs> skydiving. It was pretty awesome as far as a, a run-of-the-mill balloon jump normally goes. You don't, you don't usually end up on the news for that. No, for sure. You know, I was that was like, I remember that vividly, that period of time in my life I had a goatee. It was a great look for me. And I was We're not shoe shining then, buddy. I wasn't did not responsible enough to uh, <laughs> for a shoe shining kit to be part of my uh, very few valuables I own. But I was I was like on the that was the start of my heyday of skydiving and base jumping. The um, heyday of vertical separation. <laughs> we don't talk about that. That's a story for another time. <laughs> I know all the skydiver listeners on this show will love hearing about how I. Uh, did some dangerous things as a skydiver in my early 20s and was unwilling to listen to your incredibly valuable coaching. Good thing yeah, I you're grew still up. here. Yeah, I survived. Yeah. So, so far. what was it? Uh, <laughs> did you want to say anything else about this balloon jump? That heyday, the heyday. I do want to hear a few more details about that heyday for you. Um, you know, I don't remember specifics. I remember some of the great people that were there. Uh, it actually kind of saddens me to reminisce about this because of our mutual friend max who did come Indeed. up on the on the news with us he was on the balloon load um you probably knew him better uh we were good friends with him from the drop zone he was a packer and did his aff skydives yeah. So yeah i knew him since pretty much the day he started skydiving and unfortunately max passed away um in a base jumping incident um i don't remember where that was was it in switzerland or italy yeah. okay it's always for me base jumping. It is undeniably awesome, and I love watching video, especially like proxy flying. Uh -huh. But it's always, I'm always just a little bit bummed when my friends tell me that they're going to start base jumping because I just know how so many base jumping stories end. And I know it's it, it's kind of, I don't know disingenuine maybe i don't know what the word is exactly it seems wrong for a skydiver to be concerned you know with other people doing action sports but um skydiving as far as parachute related sports it's probably one of the most manageable that there is with the most risk mitigation and then when you start getting up into things like speed flying and base jumping things that take place in the mountains where you're dealing not just with a parachute but you're dealing with terrain and mountainous weather it's just such an unforgiving environment for parachutes and it's just always it puts a little bit of a black cloud over my head when i know that one of my friends is getting into it because it's just a i feel like with base jumping you either stop base jumping or you die base jumping and yeah it's just hard to see that, you know? It's, uh, I'll be honest with you, it's been a little bit on my mind today and in recent months, having a friend at the drop zone um, that I was jumping out of Colorado get really into it. And I just get so excited any anytime I talk about, like, you know, I only have a handful of base jumps. Like, I was a forever amateur, if you will. But I, I was the same way in skydiving. I was like this forever amateur, never really that proficient, never that consistent with my jumping, just a lot of skill from the wind tunnel. Just a lot of exposure, but like I wasn't really a true skydiver. But coming back into skydiving in my 30s has been awesome. 
to iron out my weaknesses. And like, there's a little part of me that wonders how I would approach base jumping with like my older, wiser self. Although maybe I wouldn't, maybe that means like being older and wiser means avoiding incredibly risky activities. I I did some base jumps. I think it was 26 when I did them. Mm -hmm. And my, that's kind of like where a lot of these thoughts started to crystallize for me because I realized that it is so amazing. There's really no feeling like it. It's it's so incredible. You know, like you know, like when you like get in a car wreck and you almost die and then you don't. You're like, oh my god, I'm like so amped up. <laughs> it's basically like it was like that. And then I realized if I had gotten into this earlier, I'm pretty sure this would have been what killed me. And uh, and I did 20 jumps. And I kind of get out of my system, and then I never really had the desire to go back. And it, it also really opened my eyes about like the difference with skydiving and base jumping. Like they are completely different. The the only similarities really I feel is that there are toggles. Those canopies do not fly the same. They don't open the same. You're dealing with so many different conditions. You know, the the harness you're wearing and the toggles, that's about what where the similarities between the two sports end. And well, even, even the harness is is made for only one parachute and it yeah once you dump that one parachute at it like opens uh, i mean most uh you know and i'm sure the technology's changed a lot and i was never that um savvy with gear anyway but you know the typical dual pin base jumping system would like open up almost like laying flat <laughs> like mm-hmm. so it fit differently than like your normal skydiving harness you didn't have like a stiff reserve like tightly packed in there um, yeah, the canopy is it's packed all across your back. Like one parachute fills the entire container, as opposed to two parachutes filling filling the skydiving container. Mm-hmm. And so it is a lot flatter. But yeah, it feels it feels a lot. I don't know. It just feels weird. It felt weird on my back because I wasn't used to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I personally am glad that I had the experience, but then got out of it and didn't have the desire to go back. That's you know, I, I think that was really important step for me because there was definitely a a long period in skydiving where I was a hazard to everyone around me, including myself and maybe even some people on the ground that weren't on the skydive. So (laughs) it sounds like you had your own experience with vertical separation, Josh. (laughs) I did. Um, Indeed. I, I, I will say the one reason that like the, the, the epitome of like the perfect base jump for me was when uh, my good friend sport Chad, um, Chad H. I won't say his last name, but a very good friend of ours took me out to Norway and sh- showed me the ropes. He had taken me on my first terminal base jump, first antenna. He was kind of like a mentor to me in many ways. I've always looked up to him. Um, Norway, like tracking off of a giant, you know, 2000 plus foot cliff and seeing the cliff, like in a tracking position, like looking between your legs and seeing the cliff going by between your legs or off an antenna seeing the antenna between your legs as you whiz by and accelerate. There is nothing quite like that. I don't really have a desire to jump low bridges, low cliffs, low objects, big cliffs where you can hit terminal velocity. You can run off of a cliff and accelerate to free flying speeds. If you want to, there's people that free fly off of cliffs. I mean, that's where it's terminal magicians. Yeah. That, (laughs) That does sound amazing, and uh, hey, that's why I like watching footage of it. (laughs) I will observe from a distance. Uh, So, you know earlier when I asked you if we had any mail? Yeah. 
Well, guess what? We do have a piece of mail that just oh. came in. Somebody sent us a uh, somebody sent us a postcard finally, huh? We did. Yeah, it's uh it's from Norway. No, this is uh <laughs> it starts, "Hey John and Bart." I didn't quite get the names right. <laughs> Long time first time. I thought I might chime chime in on what I perceived as a misuse of the term uncanny valley. We feel stronger connections to creatures and objects that are more like us. A teddy bear more than a pillow, a mouse more than a lizard, a chimp more than a tiger. But when something like an animation or animatronic gets very close to looking like a human, the graph suddenly drops off and we're totally creeped out by it. The graph quickly recovers at the point where we cannot tell the difference between a fake thing and an actual human. The dip in the graph is the uncanny valley. See attached. She included a, a really good drawing that displays uh, this idea. Uh, our emotional connection to the squeegee robot is actually quite canny. Uh, oh, so that's right. I was, the squeegee yeah. robot. That's right. That, that really didn't apply to uncanny valley, did it? I well, don't know which not one according okay. to our good friend, Derek, who wrote this letter to us. Wait, is this uh, Derek? Derek P? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Oh, nice. <laughs> that John and Bart should have given it away. Uh, but he said, bear in mind that I am not an expert and didn't even bother reading the Wikipedia page on the subject before spewing this all out. Thanks, Derek. You, de- you definitely set us straight on that one. Got us again, guy. <laughs> We're the John and Bart just never getting it right over here. <laughs> well, that's excellent. And I always appreciate a little uh, corrective action in my life. Healing by humiliation. It's the only way we'll ever <laughs> learn our lesson. So are you ready to get into the off top? Yes, I can't wait to see what we get wrong. It will fill me with shame. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Walking a fine line and having things wrong on this one. Uh, All right. Have you ever heard the concept of the nine intelligences? Uh, Is this like the Four Agreements Paul Colho sort of self-help book? Uh, Based on my eye squint, I'm going to say probably not because I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, No, this is a... uh, this was a theory that was proposed in 1983 by a Harvard-educated developmental psychologist. Oh, Arnold. Shout out, our yeah. the Harvard alumni. Harvard, what's up, buddy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is by Howard Gardner, uh, and he just, he described a battery of categories that cover the gamut of human intelligence, and uh, these are in no particular order. But he said that uh, the, the nine intelligences of the human mind are first linguistic. So this would be like as Money Penny and James Bond would say, being a cunning linguist, mm, or uh-huh. as I would say, an assertive oralist. Oh, Basically, wow. can you word good? That's like what the, <laughs> the linguistic intelligence is. And he's, he said that this is linguistic intelligence is the most widely shared of all human competent, competences. And I've been thinking actually a lot about uh, English specifically, but like learning to read and write because we're teaching our five-year-old to read right now. She's in school and she's doing these, these things called sight words, which is basically a word like the or and or is also things like said and little, they put words like that into this, this sight word category, which are words that you, you look at them and you ascertain the meaning without actually reading it. You know, you just kind of get used to what that collection of letters looks like, but looking at these weird words like something like said s-a-i-d like i will ask me dad why is it spelled like this when it sounds like it has an e in it and i haven't really been able to come up with an answer other than just because it looks better 
And it really seems like a lot of American English is designed the way it is specifically because of the way it looks. Even when you look at like British word like color and then English, American English, and they take out the U, it seems like it's strictly because it looks different. And, you know, to me being that's what I was raised on, it looks better to me. And I've just run across a bunch of things like that in English where the rules just throw them out the window and have to just tell Lila just because that's what it looks like and that's what it is. I don't know. I'm not a linguistologist. That's usually what I tell her. <laughs> but have you noticed that with English, how it's like there's no rhyme and reason when you really start to p- pick it apart how stuff is spelled? No, I'm sure it's just a collection of historical happenstances. It is. Random it's chance bizarre. events. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I completely buy certain spellings being you're you're saying that they look they're like physically the word physically has more aesthetic appeal that's what it seems like okay i I don't know if i buy that but you know what well i'm not selling it brett i'm just suggesting it (laughs) (laughs) all right so we'll move on the uh the next intelligence is logical and mathematical so this is like the ability to calculate quantify consider propositions and hypotheses carry out complete mathematical operations. So this is like the scientific, the accurate, the specific intelligence, all the things that I am not. This is uh, basically science-heavy intelligence. The next is musical, the capacity to discern pitch, rhythm, uh, timbre, and tone. This intelligence enables us to recognize, create, reproduce, and reflect on music. And there is typically a connection between music and emotion, as well as a connection between musical and the mathematical intelligence. And this is one that's completely foreign to me. Like, I can appreciate music, but the ability ability to create it is so bizarre. Like, I don't even understand where to start. But I am fascinated by people with this ability and this type of intelligence. And I think, are are you that way where if you see someone doing something that seems completely beyond your abilities it just like just like become obsessed with that because it's just so strange to think about a human mind functioning differently than mine because this is the only sample size i have is one i i think this is uh totally right up my alley i was just talking about this today that i think one of the very few skills that i have but it's a valuable skill is seeing how other people tick recognizing that there's differences between me and that person and then trying to emulate those differences. And this has come up time and time again with the crew bar. Like when I look at Derek P uh, <laughs> speak of the devil, he is a superhuman. He is an athlete. He is highly organized. He is highly self-disciplined. I don't have those same qualities, but I can at least try to figure out <laughs> and reverse engineer how he accomplishes what he accomplishes and maybe take just a little bit and put it in my bag of tricks. Um, like how I, a sociopath mimics human emotion to try to fit in with the normies, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think of you with action sports. I mean, I, you know, there is a select number of people that, you know, rise to the top of, whatever extreme sport it is because they can just sort of like flip the switch in their brain. They're not afraid anymore or they are afraid, but they overcome it. Um, You know, I don't think that comes naturally to me, but I see it in other people and I say, maybe I can try that. Maybe I can emulate it. So I'm like the psychopath of successful people. Stealing everybody's talents. Success mimicry. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, <laughs> it's great that you bring up action sports because the next intelligence is spatial. So this is uh, the ability to think in three dimensions. So the core capacities include mental imagery, spatial reasoning, image manipulation, graphic and artistic skills, and an active imagination. But this this is thing this is a kind of intelligence that sailors, pilots, sculptures, painters, architects, athletes. Uh, th- this is definitely a skill that skydiving fosters because mm-hmm. skydiving it's you know it's the ultimate three dimensional sport. And also, I think video games encourage this type of thinking. I've always thought of video games as like cross training for life, and there are so many things with spatial reasoning, hand eye coordination that and problem solving that video games I feel like those skills that I train in video games just from playing will pop up in my regular life and like oh this is like solving a puzzle in a video game or something you know mm-hmm. yeah it helps you know that's a uh, spatial reasoning and also video games speaking of video games body kinesthetics so this is uh, the next intelligence the ability to manipulate objects and perform a variety of physical skills so athletes dancers surgeons creators gamers and this one goes hand in hand with skydiving and with video games. And uh, both of those two skills, spatial and body kinesthetic, I feel like just personally, the way I've been living, I, f- I feel like those two intelligences have just been building and building in my brain my entire life. Do you feel, how do you feel with like your body kinesthetic and spatial reasoning? Um, I would give myself uh, six out of H. Six out of H. Go back to linguistic school. <laughs> no, I think, you know, I don't think my spatial reasoning is as strong as maybe yours, to be honest with you. Um, I don't have a super well-developed natural sense of direction. It takes me usually a long time at a place to get used to like where north, south, east, west is if I don't have incredibly obvious landmarks like a series of mountains mm-hmm. um, that makes it easy but you know a lot of people tend to like when they realize i'm not great with directions they tend to think like oh you're a pilot well there's a high level of um spatial reasoning that's very different very unique to sort of like understanding your energy management approach path missed approach procedure that uh, is kind of like i can look at a map and identify like where I'm going and where I need to be. And it's a little bit different than me being on like a ground ground level. I don't know. I, I haven't really connected the two. I feel like my spatial reasoning at work is pretty good, but in life when I'm on the ground in a car trying to figure it out, I just rather plug in the directions. <laughs> yeah. That's the glory that of a smartphone. Sense. Yeah. It's uh, probably much easier to navigate when you're 30,000 feet in the air. Also, it, I mean, it's there's not nothing hard. obstructing your view. We have, we have well. You don't even need the view. Um, I mean, you you have all sorts of maps and navigation equipment, and you know uh, a nice, colorful magenta line to follow. And even without Beautiful. that, you still have lots of other resources to help help you find your way. So I've never really had an issue with it. Um, yeah, I don't know. What was the other one? Kinesthetic. <clears throat> uh, yeah, body kinesthetic, which is like physical skills, athletes dancers See, surgeons I would, I would give that like a like a half how a many thumb. out of h would you uh, give it a four a 4.7 <laughs> wow 4.7 t 
not having any basis on how far along H is on the scale, it's hard to say <laughs> if that's good or bad. I need to go back I, to scale school. You do. So the next intelligence is interpersonal. So this is the ability to interact effectively with others, communication, uh, understanding personal differences, and sensitivity to emotions. So this is an empathetic, uh, empathetic intelligence. So teachers, leaders, actors, politicians. Um, I guess you might be able to say those last two are the same thing. But this is uh, the ability to understand others. And it sounds like with your uh, – with your little psychopath thing from earlier, <laughs> you're pretty pretty good with this one. Yeah, I'm like a psychopath with empathy. It's the best of both worlds. It's perfect. It's just yeah. like a normal human. Just a normal person is yeah. what I am. Yeah. And then the next is uh, interpersonal, the ca- capacity to understand oneself. So your thoughts, feelings, and the ability to chart your own future, the appreciation of the self and the human condition. So this is like introspective knowledge about one's own mind. So psychologists, spiritual leaders, philosophers, Great thinkers about the nature of being human. And then there's uh, naturalistic. This one seems pretty basic, like the ability to discern between various things in the natural world, plants, animals, as well as being able to read and navigate landscape. Not you. Uh, (laughs) This was clearly of high importance in the past with hunter-gatherer societies and the evolution of agriculture, but these skills seem to be on decline in the modern world. And I would agree. I'm just like you with navigating on the ground. You know, the phone just does it all now. Yeah. And uh, although I can still identify a rock, like no problem. If I see one, I can tell you that's a rock. So farmers, hunters, outdoorsmen, and chefs all demonstrate high naturalistic intelligence. And it's also theorized that naturalistic intelligence is harnessed in the consumer world to determine differences between things like automobiles, shoes, clothing styles, and whatnot. Interesting. So it seems like maybe that naturalistic instinct to identify trees and rocks and waterfalls is kind of evolving to incorporate the technology of humanity, now which as, is really interesting. Now, as con- as a contentologist, I feel like our studies into content sort of encompass all of these. Well, know, maybe that's not Harvard the, for you, buddy. Maybe not the kinesthetic, yeah. but everything else is applies. Yep. It's, I mean, contentology is really the study of being an ultimate human. And the, uh, the last one is existential. And this is the most interesting to me. It's the ability to tackle deep questions about life, death, things like, is there an afterlife and where did we come from? And this is the one that I have always felt truly denotes sentience, like the ability to conceptualize your own mortality. So this one is also the biblical curse of losing your innocence. Because once you understand that death can occur, it's hard not to make it part of your basic thought process in all things. And this is, uh, I think that existential intelligence is, it really is like the curse of humanity. Hmm. But it's hard its hard to imagine existing without that now. Like I look yeah. at ba- babies, my babies, and it's just so interesting to see a human mind that doesn't have really a concept of existential crisis yet. Yeah. Well, they just need to wait uh, 
a few short years and they'll know all about existential dread. <laughs> it creeps up on all of us. It does. So this basic theory was proposed by Gardner in 1983 and it's been amended a few times over the years as he discovered updates to his own model. Like he added existential knowledge, I think in 1999. And uh, there's still some debate over things like math and language being actual intelligences and not just abilities of the human mind. But I think it's very obvious that those two, they, those things do require a different knowledge base. Um, you know, it's it's strange that these are the two things that IQ tests are based on, and you know that's uh, that's really why IQ tests recently have been kind of under fire because of this exact model. You know, they don't really test a human's true knowledge base; they're testing really linguistic and mathematic. Yeah, and you know, it's it's the reason why someone can be a complete doofus when it comes to standard learning, but be a genius athlete or be street smart or the master of some arcane task. You know, it's, it's a true disservice to the human mind to base an intelligence judgment only on two of these categories. Definitely. And this kind of makes me think like, which of these categories did dolphins or octopi have access to? Hmm. Like, are they, are they cunning linguists in their weird whistle language? And can they conceptualize their own mortality? That's, when I look at a dolphin or an octopus, that's all I can think about. It's like, do they know that they're mortal? Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. And, uh, yeah, I think just knowing that there are these different, uh, intelligences out there, linguistic, logical, musical, spatial, body kinesthetic, interpersonal, intrapersonal, naturalistic, and existential. I know it really helps me kind of come to grips with my own brain. Yeah. That is very interesting stuff. I've never heard of this model of the mind. But how many are there? Nine? You said the nine intelligences? Nine, yeah. I'll share a thing in the uh, an infographic in the show notes. People want to look deeper into it. Interesting. I do love a good infographic. Must be that spatial informational side of me. That, that wasn't it? one of them, was it? <laughs> Maybe you discovered a tenth. Call Dr. Gardner. Well, besides uh, lots of interesting infographics, what do you have on your content circuit? Uh, so the main thing that I've been obsessed with lately is uh, this PS5 game called Returnal, which is a it's a roguelike, which is a game where when you die, you reset all the way back to the beginning. And, oh wow! Uh, you might keep like you keep like certain upgrades, like the ability to dash or you get a sword or something. But all of your progress, all of your health uh, health bar, all this stuff that you work to build up the entire run is lost. And so wow. it, as you play, it's mostly skill that you're building. You're making very incremental upgrades to the way your character plays, but mostly you're just getting better and better until eventually, theoretically, you beat the entire game in one run. And this was a game that I was really hesitant to buy because I do love playing games, but I'm not really awesome at like hard games. Most of the games I play, I don't know. I've got like this, uh, I got this calcified brain and uh, it's just hard to keep up with the Twitch reflexes you need to be like a total badass at video games these days. So I was hesitant to buy it, uh, but I did just in a moment of weakness pulled the trigger and now like it's all I can think about. Just wow. thinking about like strategy <laughs> and just trying to stack the deck in my favor as much as possible. So I'll let you know if I ever beat that. It's a long shot, but we'll see. It sounds like the story that you told on the show about a video game you played on like Epic Mode, which same type of thing. It was like you had one chance to 
in a campaign mode to yeah. beat the campaign or beat the game. Ghost Recon Wildlands. Yeah, there that was That's that was it. my greatest video game achievement at all of all time. So far. Yeah, we'll see if I ever beat Returnal. Yeah. So how about you? Uh, well, let's see. I'm reading this book called The Five Love Languages. It's a little cheesy, a little corny, but I'm just trying to better understand some of that interpersonal uh, intelligence that you were talking about, because apparently we all speak slightly different love languages, both as givers and as receivers. That's the sociopath in you trying to mimic a human. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, if I if my face slips and I fall into the uncanny valley, please let me know. We'll do Bart. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I was uh, I'm a fan of this show right here. I know I, in the past I've said um, that I wasn't a big fan of the content clearinghouse, but I listened to Punisher uh, episode 73, where you recommended the Netflix Marvel series. Uh, that is dark and gritty, and wow, I absolutely loved it. And I am watching The Punisher now, so thank you nice. for that. I have seen yeah. it before. I've seen at least uh, season one, possibly season two. I think, is there three seasons of it? No, just two. Just two, okay. So I feel like I've watched one season before, but well, I there's am two and a half, actually. There's mm-hmm. two and a half seasons, because half of a season of Daredevil is about Punisher. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, it's uh, it is fantastic, which is why you brought it to the show. And you know, it was interesting. One of the uh, notes that you made about kind of the utilization of the Punisher symbol by like police officers and uh, law enforcement, military. I, l- I loved that you pointed out kind of the irony of that, or maybe the hypocrisy. I don't know what what, what linguistic uh, word you want to use there, but. I was thinking about it, and ignorance of the law doesn't mean that you're still allowed to break the law. So I feel like this is this kind of has a parallel where people should understand the symbol that they paint on their giant truck. Um, because if I'm gonna go take an action, and it's a law, you know, it's it's breaking the law, just because I'm ignorant of it and I don't know that's the case doesn't mean I can't, you know, I'm I'm exempt from getting in trouble for that. So, t- I don't know. It was just an interesting point that you made. Isn't there that... There's some book I've heard. I don't know who the author is or anything about it other than the title, but it's like three felonies a day. It's a book about like all the crazy arcane laws on the books that huh. we break every single day. I haven't heard and, that, uh, but yeah, I believe it. Yeah, that's kind of like... That's the putting the Punisher logo on your truck of right. law <laughs> Exactly. <abiding. laughs> exactly. Um, so that's about it on my content circuit awesome yeah good stuff man yeah all right well let's take a quick break and then when we come back we'll get into the content content? welcome back to the content clearinghouse all right brett been waiting at least a week to hear this buddy what do you got oh josh i have to say i think we've reached a certain tipping point lately in regards to the content that we bring to the show. We tend to travel down <laughs> content avenues in the show. <laughs> well, you know, I actually considered intentionally mixing up the content genre or maybe the brand of content so we don't always seem to gravitate towards one singular focus. But lately, we have. And when it comes down to a question of should I intentionally try to bring 
some more variety to the show, or should I discuss what I'm absolutely stoked on, what I'm obsessed with right now? Number well, two. it's all, Yeah, the latter's always going to win. So despite the recent Marvel saturation with both our content circuits and our content recommendations, I am bringing yet another Marvel project into your eagerly awaiting ear holes. They are ripe for the <laughs> filling. <laughs> Honestly, I'm thinking we should probably just rename the show the Marvel Marvel House. <laughs> yeah, that has a ring to it. Actually. It does. It does. Yep. So actually, this is the perfect time to insert the classic millennial hashtag. Sorry, not sorry, because I absolutely love this Netflix Marvel series I'm about to discuss. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> This has actually been on my content list since the inception of the show, way back in the covid prequel days. And I also just finished binging all three seasons once again, despite my incredibly busy work life. And also, I want to say that, as always, my content timing is serendipitously impeccable. How's that for linguistic <laughs> wordsmithing Ooh, for you? <laughs> Get this man an IQ test. So the, the show I'm about to talk about, it uh, the viewership has recently spiked due to some recent related Easter eggs in both the movie Spider-Man No Way Home and the Disney Plus show Hawkeye. This is probably a good time to uh, let you know there's going to be just a few spoilers for both, both this show and then the uh, previously mentioned movie and uh, Disney Plus series. So the gritty, darker Netflix side of the Marvelverse that you're so fond of with the Punisher is undoubtedly connected to and integrated with the more mainstream Marvel Cinematic Universe that we all know, and at least on this show, all clearly love. But I would like too to- Too much. We love it a lot. I don't yeah. know if it's too much. It's just the right amount. Nah. It's the right, exactly the perfect right amount of love. Definitely. All of it. Well, I, I do want to point out that like a true content snob- a little bit of a content hipster. I was rewatching this show on Netflix before it became popular again because of these Easter eggs. I don't know how that worked out, but this it's is because you're so cool. It's perfect timing. Yeah, you're just the coolest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am talking, of course, about Daredevil. Yeah, yeah you know, buddy. I hear what one half of one of those seasons is actually a Punisher show. <laughs> <laughs> so, let me make one thing clear. If Wait, let me make one thing clear. That whole buildup would have been much more <laughs> suspenseful if Brett hadn't shared with me a primer video of the Daredevil hallway fight two days ago. Yeah. I totally knew what was coming up, guys. I, wanted, I was right there with you this time. I wanted to uh, get your content juices flowing a little bit before the show. I, I dared you to watch that clip, and I believe that you did. You devil you on my <laughs> shoulder. Uh, this... Uh, I think this is the third net or the third Marvel series we've covered fully on this show, right? Uh, we covered Falcon, Falcon and the Winter, Winter Soldier, Soldier Punisher, Punisher, and now this. Yeah, and then yeah. talked at length about Loki and talked about Hawkeye, WandaVision. Hawkeye. Yeah, we love those series. I'm a fan, buddy. I hook, line, and sinker. They got me good. Right in the right in the gills. Right. <laughs> so. um you know, I got to say, if you saw the title of this episode or if you heard us, you know, you didn't look at the episode and and then you just heard me say Daredevil, 
If That's you, how people use podcast apps. Yeah, you know, just blindly, blindly selecting. Their, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's on autoplay. I don't know. But if 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 somebody out there thought for just a moment that I was going to talk about the pretty terrible uh, but still marginally entertaining 2003 action fantasy flick Daredevil starring Ben Affleck, well, shame on you for not understanding that our show is about providing excellent content recommendations that would be antithetical to our mission (laughs) statement i i'm hoping that you have some hilariously awful things about uh to say about daredevil the movie man i cannot say (laughs) i've ever seen that movie all the way through actually i think when i saw the image of colin farrell with a target it was like imprinted in his forehead i was like nope this is not for me bullseye there's actually a there's a kind of reimagination of bullseye in daredevil the series as well which is kind of interesting but yeah that's you know somebody that can like throw things perfectly like a well i like know. that idea right just that character design of him with that brand on his forehead this is and also it's got ben affleck nah. it's i mean bullseye might have been the worst thing colin farrell has ever done and i'm pretty sure he's like beaten his wife i'm not i'm not oh, jesus i'm not this is a legend, everyone. I'm not. Uh, I just feel like I'm pulling that out of the recesses of my memory. Please don't sue us, Colin. We have no idea what we're talking about. Brett is not and does not claim to be a Colin Farrell historian, so we don't know if that's true. <laughs> I skipped. That's They had that class at Harvard. I, that was a gap year for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, indeed, Josh, the show and the movie. Both Daredevils follow the same general premise. They're based on the same Marvel comic book character created by writer-editor Stan Lee and artist Bill Everett, and some input from Jack Kirby. And fun fact, actually, writer and artist Frank Miller also influenced the character quite heavily in the 1980s and is probably responsible for cementing the character as a popular and influential part of the Marvel Universe at least according to whoever writes fun facts found on Wikipedia. <laughs> so anyone. <laughs> it could be anybody. It might be Colin was, Farrell. Was Daredevil a popular character before the MCU? Because I know that they really like revived Iron Man and Thor, who were like not super popular it's before popular. the movies. You know, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe Daredevil was more popular than Iron Man. Like, I feel like Iron Man was oh, definitely. Those, yeah. Yep. No, Iron I mean, Man was not hot property back then. Yeah. No, I think I think it definitely was. You know, I mean, it was it was enough of a known character to make it into a blockbuster superhero movie before blockbuster superhero movies were really a thing. And Elektra too. Elektra, yeah. the the movie with Jennifer Garner came out uh, came out after Daredevil and was actually somehow worse. I believe <laughs> <laughs> somehow. No, 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 when you got when you're working off that original Daredevil foundation, it's nowhere to go but into the basement. You know, I, I believe. Don't quote me on this, Colin. But if you looked up the worst rated Marvel inspired um, movies, I believe Elektra is at the bottom. I think it got like an eleven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yikes! And Daredevil got like 38, 44. I don't know. It's in the thirties, forties range. It's still not good. Well, so, so the Daredevil, he's also known in the comics as Hornhead or the Man Without Fear. Uh, the nickname I'm more familiar with from the Netflix series, because I didn't read the comic books, as the Devil of Hell's Kitchen. Uh, he's a lawyer by day, vigilante by night, 
and he also happens to be blind, at least in the conventional sense. His lack of typical sight, it does not slow down his ass-kicking or his face-punching, as he works to single-handedly, or double-fistedly, if you will, take down, or at least temper organized crime in the city he loves so much. He has some general goals in common with your beloved Punisher, with a couple important uh, differences. The Punisher will almost never hesitate to maim, kill, or completely destroy his target, especially a criminal. (laughs) You're right. He is awesome. (laughs) You do see the Punisher waver slightly with his aggressive tendencies when he comes, say, like face-to-face with a young soldier, a uniformed kid just following orders. And yet, even then, the Punisher will still do what he has to do to complete the mission. Well, he has a code. Like, he's not going to kill those people, but he'll maim them. <laughs> yeah, of course. What an honorable guy. <laughs> Honestly, the the Punisher is it, just like the Daredevil. And I'm going to talk about the two a little bit in the casting, but what a great character. So well-rounded, so well-cast. I'm really glad you talked about it on the show. It, it got me on, like, the continuation of my ongoing Marvel kick, Josh. Well, you're welcome, and hopefully you love John Bernthal as much as I do now. I absolutely do. I'll never forget how to say his last name again. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's like you're a professional contentologist with a content podcast or something. It's amazing. It's just like that. (laughs) So the devil of Hell's Kitchen, in, uh, in comparison to the Punisher, he has a very strict no killing policy. Even when faced with the absolute worst of the worst of the New York criminal underbelly. And this Shakespearean choice to kill or not to kill, that's a question. This plays an incredibly pivotal role in the Daredevil series, especially in the third season. So to really kick this bad boy off, let's talk about uh, a couple of things that I know are very close to your heart as well when it comes to excellent top tier storytelling. Okay, so three things I'm going to discuss. Casting fighting and villains Ooh, i love them all <laughs> okay so with casting let me let me talk uh, about the uh, the supporting characters first so foggy nelson and karen page and actually karen's name i couldn't remember when we were chatting about my content circuit on the last episode i feel so bad about that oh what's uh, her name oh what's her name sometimes <laughs> you know i'm not an expert okay i'm just a contentologist um, you can do your homework so these two they round out the trio of friends that make up Nelson and Murdoch, uh, the, the law office of Nelson and Murdoch. Now, if there is any criticism about the Daredevil Netflix series that I will concede is valid, it usually revolves around Foggy Nelson. The first time I watched the show, I agreed with the consensus that Foggy is kind of a whiny bitch. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He is. I admit it. So Foggy plays a close friend, basically the best friend of Matt Murdock, Daredevil. They met in law school. They were basically attached at the hip since then. There are a few episodes where he comes across as whiny, clingy, like a little bit annoying. Uh, but I have good news for Daredevil fans, whether you want to rewatch the series or maybe, you know, you're, you, you haven't seen it and you're on the fence. I want to give you my fresh perspective or maybe this is like a little bit of a larger perspective on a rewatch. Foggy's golly gee moments, they did not bother me nearly as much on this second viewing. 
I actually feel like this was an intentional character choice to balance out the extremely tough and capable best friend, Matt Murdock. It's like having uh, a straight man in comedy, but instead totally. it's a bitch in action. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you you got to keep in mind, Matt Murdock's public-facing persona, I mean, he he's that of a blind lawyer. So with Golly G. Foggy paired with this, like, clearly handsome Matt, um, but he's sight-challenged, right? This, this, this good-looking but blind law partner and friend. They seem kind of like a perfect pair of misfits. But this then is contrasted nicely when someone's in trouble and Matt has to jump into action and he turned down an alley and you just see him toss his mobility cane aside. And that's the name, by the way, for that white cane that people with visual impairments use to navigate. So he just tossed this thing aside, full out sprint up a wall or a fire escape, climb a freaking New York City building like he's Spider-Man-esque, you know, Josh on crack. He's parkouring his way through the city. I mean, it's absolutely awesome to see that capable badass just appear so quickly when he's clearly trying to portray, and not completely dishonestly, like somebody that's blind. Yeah, it's like the... uh... You know, in the Prestige, the uh, Christopher Nolan film, where oh, yeah. they're Com- talking about the old man the magician. Act. Yeah, commit, yeah, it's like commit to the, the character. The act is Matt Murdock, the lawyer, and then who he really is is Daredevil. Exactly, a hundred percent. Yes. Oh, that's a good parallel. Oh, I love. When are we going to talk about that show on, or that movie on the show, man? Maybe sometime soon. <laughs> that's not really a hint. I'm just saying that to <laughs> yeah. try to make Brett curious. It's truly one of my like, ooh, top 10, top five, just the best. That's yeah, a good one. Okay, so one more point in Foggy's defense that makes me think his whiny and irritating nature in the first season and part of season two was an intentional choice by the writers. So Matt's double life as Daredevil was kept from those closest to him to keep his friends safe. It's like a total Batman style-esque Spider-Man. secret it's keeping. the exact reason Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Uh, Batman, absolutely. Well, we all know that the truth comes out eventually, and Foggy discovering Matt's nighttime antics, it makes for both a pivotal storyline in the series, and it leads to a lot of personal growth for Foggy, and then we really get to see the difference and maturity with Foggy Nelson in season three. He ends up with like a different law firm, more stable relationships, suave haircut, he's finally pulling in some serious money from all his lawyering. But most importantly... He is strong. He's well-spoken. He's confident. He kind of becomes an overall badass in his own realm. And it's really cool to see that evolution. We get to see this whiny bitch grow up big and strong. And maybe he's not jumping across rooftops. He's not taking out the bad guys with a flip twist kick to the face. But he's like this real-life professional. And it's so much more realistic. It's grounded. It's attainable. And that's what I think the show brings to the viewers. I mean, Foggy's changes are representative of the evolution and the growth of all the characters in this awesome series. All these characters go through this. And and Foggy's character in particular kind of speaks to the whiny bitch in all of us, that we can all grow up, we can all mature, and we can all become... Complains to the whiny bitch in all of us. (laughs) Exactly. But maybe there's hope for us. We can all become confident badasses. All right, I want to talk... We're nothing without hope. That's true. Just a sad, aimless species floating on a rock through space. Existential intelligence, (laughs) the curse of man. So let me talk about one of my favorite characters, Karen Page. 
She oh, what's her name? Oh, what's her name is portrayed by the absolutely stunning Deborah Ann Wool. Honestly, this is one of my favorite characters in the show. She is cast and played perfectly by this gorgeous actress and model, also known for playing Jessica Hamby in the HBO drama series True Blood. And Karen Page is also one of the Punisher's best friends. Oh, yeah. You can't have the Punisher without Karen Page. And possibly vice versa. I think Punisher saved her a couple of times. Definitely. <clears throat> well, when we first meet Karen Page, she's definitely this like lost and confused woman. Like We find out later she's racked with guilt over a troubled past. Her life just seems to be her down, despite her desire to overcome this darkness through sheer positivity. She works hard. She wants to be a part of something bigger than her. I mean, Karen almost seems weak at the beginning of the series. She's like this delicate woman on the verge. Foggy-esque, if you will. <laughs> Definitely not whiny. Karen is not whiny. She just seems delicate. She's on the verge of falling apart. She's like a damsel in distress who needs rescuing by our favorite strong male protagonist. Now, all these stereotypes or action flick cliches, they couldn't be further from the truth. It turns out, despite not having any superpowers, Karen might be one of the most important heroes in the series and definitely one of the most clearly defined and expertly played characters in any of the Marvel Netflix shows and dare I say movies period my it's a favorite old statement it's true you watch Daredevil and you tell me I'm wrong sir you do it <laughs> you write I, into this show I and tell us double that double Brett's wrong. dare you <laughs> Ooh. so uh, my favorite part about this character we get to witness her incredible growth and evolution throughout the series as J.S. Sales puts it in his CBR article, uh, Karen Page, the future voice of the MCU's everyday heroes. Karen Page transforms into a tenacious, courageous, and multidimensional character. I couldn't have said this better myself. Like, she is truly an everyday hero. Daredevil might be the most engaging hero with his insane skills as a fighter, but Karen Page exhibits the ultimate bravery. She's putting herself in harm's way. She wants to shed light into the darkness, and she wants to find out the truth, whatever the cost. Now, I love a good detective story. Uh, I love like a like a mystery. And Karen grows into this incredibly capable investigator and journalist in the later seasons. And her performance alone will hook you. And just when you think it can't get any better, she has this really intense backstory, and it's finally revealed in season three. It is absolutely a doozy. It's incredibly gripping. You're going to love it, Josh. It is true, though, that she... See, I'm mostly familiar with her from Punisher because it's been a long time since I've watched Daredevil. I think I watched it when it first came out, but then recently rewatched Punisher. And in that, you know, that takes place, I'm, I think, at least after Daredevil, Daredevil Season 1, but it seems like it's past all the Daredevil stories. And she's already, like... She's like brave and tough and tenacious. She's already a badass. You know, she's like keeping Punisher. up with the Punisher, you know, even though he has to save her repeatedly. But uh, that's it makes me want to go back and watch Daredevil again. Obviously, I know that's the whole point of you doing this. That's the whole point of this. I'm just trying to get you to watch Daredevil. This whole show. It, be, it is would about be interesting to, to see that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> for sure. Mission accomplished. You did it. <laughs> well, don't give me uh, too much credit yet because I still have so much to tell you, buddy. You could derail this at any moment. I could. You're right. The pressure's on. 
So to wrap up casting, let's get into the real star of Daredevil. Yes, the man with the horns himself. Uh, Josh, it's going to be tough to beat John Bernthal as the Punisher. I really think you hit the nail on the head on your Punisher episode. John Bernthal either plays a tough badass or a total asshole. And in the Punisher, he is both badass and asshole. Big time. So John Bernthal, honestly, him playing the Punisher is such perfect casting. I mean, it's like he was created in a lab. Like this He is the Punisher. He is the Punisher. Like Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man, or Chris Evans is Captain America. I mean, it's truly perfect casting. Josh, I want to submit another perfectly cast hero superhero into the mix, and I'm talking about Charlie Cox playing Matt Murdock. Charlie Cox playing the Daredevil. I, I mean, I would agree, too, mainly because I've never seen him in anything else, so I don't know him as anything but Daredevil. So he's Daredevil yeah, by like, default. Yeah, exactly, but he does seem like he's just Daredevil to me. It's incredible. He pours his heart and soul into this performance, and it shows. In my humble opinion, I think every scene is perfect from an emotional and a dramatic standpoint. He's a very complicated character. His complexities as a character show through this performance, whether it's a bit of dialogue or even a brutal fight scene. And speaking of fight scenes, there is another very important component to this perfect casting. Because as wonderful as Charlie Cox is, there is another human being responsible for bringing this incredible character to life. And that is Charlie Cox's stunt double, world-class martial artist, Chris Brewster. Now, Josh. Does he yeah. do stunts with oh, his eyes covered? He does indeed, buddy. Oh man, yeah. I've always he wondered does. if, like, with that, with that, uh, he was wearing like the stocking bandana right. thing on his head. I've always wondered if you could see through that. Um, I think um, that there are scenes that they do with um, with something that can be seen through, and then there are. I did read an interview where he talks about doing stunts basically blindfolded. Oh man. This? Yeah, it seems like a hard superhero to portray. Oh, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And like both of them are up to the challenge. I mean, this real bad this real life badass, I mean, he he is no stranger to insane fights. In real life or in entertainment. Chris Brewster also acted as Chris Evans' stunt double in the Winter Soldier, one of the content clearinghouse's favorite Marvel movies ever. But the fight we might have ranked it as the number one. It's very possible. I don't know. There's a Endgame and Infinity War. Those are always up there for me. But the um, the uh, the choreography, the style of the fight scenes between the Winter Soldier and Daredevil, honestly, they can't be more different. And Chris Brewster talks about how Captain America is you know, way faster than the fastest human. He's way stronger than the strongest human. So you can't put any realism into Captain America's fight because he isn't very human. I mean, he's a superhero. But Daredevil doesn't have this, like, super strength, you know, special special items, like special a special suit. I mean, he is human. And this is really the first street-level superhero that we've seen depicted. And we see Matt Murdock time and time again get bloodied, battered, completely beaten within an inch it's of It's like his every life. fight. Every fight. Every fight, and it feels so visceral and so real and so grounded. Um, you know, Chris Brewster kind of calls this like dirty street fighting. Uh, it's not this glossy, big budget choreographed dance that we see in other Marvel fight scenes. 
Now, I didn't realize how intense and entertaining it is to follow a superhero character that can get bloodied and bruised and then gets up for more. But I think you said it best when you were talking about the Punisher. I really love that Punisher episode. You might be his number one fan. I am. I am. I'm going to re-listen to it sometime. It's so good. I mean, you said it. Is it fun seeing this violence depicted on screen? Yes, Yes, it is. Obviously. (laughs) Now, I think that you know I'm a lover, not a fighter. But this is what content is for. Exploring, imagining, telling a drama, telling a story. Showing a character's triumphs, his tragedies. And I have truly never seen more triumphs and epic tragedies hashed out through fist-throwing fight scenes. One of the, these incredible fights that I think really stands out to me and to other Daredevil fans as well. It's the hallway beatdown that you mentioned from season that one, episode is the two. the signature scene of Daredevil, oh, the TV show. If that doesn't get you hooked, man, I, I don't know what will. Get out of here. Get out of here. So this is a five-minute long, one-take. I'm going to say that again. one It's a one-take one fight scene. It has over 100 moves. Chris Brewster talks about it at length in an interview with Variety. I'm going to link this in the show notes. I definitely encourage listeners to check out this article. We always like to link to things. We talk about reference material, articles, interviews. But this one in particular, I'm telling you. Our show notes are basically this show 2.0. Absolutely. If you're ever wondering, if you're ever listening to this, like, man, I wish I could see a picture of that or... uh, know what they're talking about it's almost always in the show notes absolutely well this is no exception definitely something to check out it is one of the most fascinating interviews with one of the most fascinating dudes ever but just to highlight some interesting points regarding this particular scene it turns out there have only been a couple one take fights in cinematic history and as a martial artist turned stuntman chris brewster has studied them over and over in these movies, they had months and months to prepare these scenes. And, you know, for Daredevil, they bought, brought Chris Brewster this idea and said, like, okay, we want to do this in one take. And he was assuming they would have at least a couple of weeks to prep it. Nope. They said they were filming this in three days. So was this a true one take or true was one it a wonder where they edit in hidden cuts? There's nope. no hidden cuts in it? No hidden because cuts. Because I am from uh just studying these myself because anytime we see like a really good oneer, i always now like once i learned about how they do hidden cuts with wipes like mm-hmm. a person passing in front of the screen now i always look for them mm-hmm. and in that one i was certainly thinking like oh there's a hidden cut right there and there's a hidden cut right here but you're saying that this entire thing was truly like a hundred move choreographed one take shot with no no camera trickery A hundred percent. That's exactly what I'm saying. I've read about this at length. It is a true one take. Like it's a piece of cinematic history. Like I didn't realize that one take fight scenes were this rare. I got to go back and watch it again now because I was looking at it with completely the wrong eyes. Don't don't just watch the YouTube video I'm going to link to, though, uh, to try to get people hooked. Wait till just start rewatching the series and it'll come up at the end of episode two of season one. And you can watch it within all of the like gritty, dramatic context that it deserves. 
Well, I'm going to watch your link tonight, but everyone else, you do that a week from now when this comes out. (laughs) Perfect. So with this scene, they had two days. They only had two days to prep it. And then on the third day, they filmed it. So it was conceptualized, choreographed, rehearsed, and then literally on the third day, put together and filmed. On top of that, while this one take insane fight scene is taking place, Charlie Cox and Chris Brewster trade places. I knew it. You know what? That's another one of the things that I that I was looking for. So I was like, oh, whenever they go into this room and you, uh-huh. they're off screen for a second, it's almost certainly the stunt man that gets thrown out through the door. Right. There's places where you can see Charlie fa- Charlie Cox's face when he's like, you see his Correct. jaw when he's up close. That's probably why you thought it was a wonder with clever editing because they, yeah. you know, I mean, Brewster, ah, it's like cooler. Charlie Cox does a lot of his own stunts. He does a lot of his own fighting. Like he is an insane shape. He you is would like, almost have to, to play Daredevil the way they do in this show. He's basically a martial artist himself, but Chris Brewster is on another planet. I mean, he does like, he'll like kick somebody in the face with like a flip twist. It's absolutely insane. So, when I was watching this uh-huh. edit, or when I was watching this scene, one of the things I was thinking about was like how long the reset would take in between takes. Oh my god! Yeah, they like throw a TV at somebody's face, like a door gets smashed. And there's a part that the part where I really noticed this was like, wow, they would have to repaint the wall, or maybe they just <laughs> digitally fixed it. You know, the the first scene where the door gets knocked out in the hallway and the light spills into the hallway, and you can see. Before the door comes out, there's no scuffs on the wall. And then when the door hits the wall, it makes like this L-shaped dent and like scrape in the paint. And I suppose, like I said, they could have digitally corrected that. But it looks like that door is actually physically affecting the paint on the wall. Yeah. And they didn't. it didn't look like that before because then you would know like, oh, this isn't the first time this happened. Right, right. Yeah, it's wild. Do you know how many takes it took I to get it? Do. I, I do. I do. you would. <laughs> I've listened to this show. Well, let me quote uh, Chris on this. So he said, not only did every single movement by the stunt players and Charlie and myself matter, there were so many variables and literally the entire crew came together. It was a beautiful dance. It really was. The camera guys were in perfect sync with our movements and it was unreal. To continue his quote, we did 12 takes of that fight. Just because there are so many things going on and at the end of almost every take, almost every take was awesome. And we were like, that's good, but it's not perfect. We don't want good. We want something that's going to go down in history. So we just got okay. Go standards. (laughs) Total. So we just kept going for it. And then when we finished that 12th one, we were like, that's it. That's perfect. And we watched it over and over and over. Every hit was a perfect sell. We loved the moments of Charlie and myself with all of the stunt actors. It could not have worked out better. So on number 12, we were like, okay, we're good. Josh. That is awesome. <laughs> I got to watch this again. Now, did you watch that link I sent you of the the fight, the hallway fight from the raid? From the raid? The raid. It's a, it's a, did you send this to me recently? It was. I sent it as a response when you sent me this video. So it's another... Uh, it's another fight scene like this, a one take in a hallway. And uh, I remember seeing some behind the scenes stuff on it. And they're in such a tight hallway that they can't really maneuver the people in the camera. So in the behind the scenes, they're move. The walls are all fake and they're like moving the walls in and out when they're out of frame to allow the camera to swing around, like through what seemed like impossible places. 
It's um, another really cool example of this type of okay, choreography. It does sound kind of familiar. I must have been lost in my outline writing contentology studies when you sent that. That'll yeah, happen. It will. It will. So, Josh, the fighting in Daredevil is incredibly awesome. I can't wait for you to give this entire series a watch. And to hook potential Daredevil viewers, it seems like it hooked you. I want to hook other listeners. I'm going to add a little teaser of this hallway fight scene. It's a, it's a little YouTube clip. If you don't want to spoil this moment, it's only two episodes in. Don't watch it. But if you want to get your fight scene juices flowing, you got to check out this riveting clip. It's only three minutes long. I'm going to link it in the show notes. And it does leave the ending of the scene unspoiled because it's about a five-minute uh, five scene. Well, also, if you don't want to spoil it, go back and erase the last 10 minutes <laughs> of everything you heard. I mean, talking about a hallway fight scene doesn't really spoil anything, though. It's like skydiving. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Good analogy. You, I mean, you, you can't read a book about skydiving and feel like you know what it's like to skydive. Indeed. We could talk about action scenes all we want, but you got to watch them. Got to watch them. All right. It's time to talk villains. There is a really obvious villain when it comes to the story of Daredevil. But first, I want to touch on one of the side villains that I know you in particular are going to love. It's very John Walker as new Captain America-esque. Like, super fascinating, edgy, badass, like, kind of dark. And it doesn't come out until season three. So it's going to... Hopefully I can hook you on watching the entire series. Well, I haven't seen season three yet, so I'm definitely going to have to catch up. Oh, it might be the best. I love them all so much. They all, they're all tied for first in my heart. So one of the best parts of the show that I've mentioned several times is the evolution and the change that we see in our characters. We see Daredevil grow and change first as basically like a like superior high-level boxer, and he's just turning baddies' faces into mashed potatoes, dressed in like some black clothes and a black bandana over his face. But then he comes into his own as a proper vigilante in season two with a costume and all. Red suit, devil horns, some cool street fighting like batons, throwing sticks, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. And that is all before he is like broken, like literally broken physically, spiritually, mentally. And he's like nothing at the end of season two and at the start of season three. We get to see his rebirth as a badass and a vigilante. As he like ditches the devil suit though, and he goes back to this like simplistic like black clothes, returning with this notable change of Muay Thai ropes wrapped around his arms and fists. It's really, really indescribably cool. Like I'm not a martial artist. I've never really been in like a physical altercation in my entire life. I did for a while. Like want to get into like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I do I've done some Taekwondo as a kid. But something about this character choice of like wrapping ropes around the fists and arms, like it's really cool, man. It looks awesome. That's for sure. I didn't know he lost the suit. I remember when I was watching this the first time, how stoked I was when he finally got the suit. And yeah, uh, yeah it's interesting to see to hear that they go back because now that I'm like away from it a little bit, I can really appreciate the uh, the intro homemade black bandana and ropes. I, outfit I, you know honestly i hope it's not too much of a spoiler because i hope i didn't spoil too much because it, it's it's a really really fascinating part of this story arc like it really i, I don't know it's it's just I, something i've never seen before i've seen you know we've all seen like oh which you know what kind of 
crazy suit is the new Captain America movie going to have? Or like what kind of like Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Man is going to get a new suit. It's going to be even more high tech and crazy to see a character like regress back to the basics, but like somehow tweak it to make it more gnarly is like, I don't know. It speaks to me deeply. Yeah. I'm pretty excited to see that now. Yeah. Well, the, the bigger, badder villain of this entire series. Now he cleverly utilizes this iconic red suit in season three by recruiting a psychopathic and highly trained FBI agent on the outs with his employer and he's basically on the outs of all of the stabilizing forces in his life. And he he manipulates this guy and turns him into a fake daredevil to do oh, his thing. <laughs> oh, sounds so good. Now, this is this is the bullseye spin. Uh, his name is Benjamin Poindexter. And he is turned into a dangerous daredevil impersonator, a personal assassin. He's basically one of the coolest, most villainous, like, human weapons I've ever witnessed in a lot of worlds of content that I've traveled in. So Wilson Bethel plays this incredibly scary, uh, scary character. And Josh, I mentioned this specifically to get you on the Daredevil binge trade because it's a really awesome story arc. It feels like a true crime, an action, a superhero flick, and a drama all rolled into one little storyline. Just the storyline alone. It's so badass. So I'm going to start wrapping up this puppy by talking about Leave some air holes for the puppy. <laughs> Absolutely. You don't want that puppy uh, running out of oxygen. You don't want to get a <laughs> dog skeleton in the mail. Schrodinger's dog. <laughs> you never know. You never know. So the one character that embodies all of my favorite aspects of this mind-blowing series, the casting, the fighting, the villainous villainy. I'm talking about the king of all villains, Kingpin. Played by Vincent D'Onofrio. Am I saying his name right, Josh? I feel like you would know. Absolutely not. I'm not? <laughs> D'No- D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio? But it's fine. I was pretty close. Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> You're all right, right. Sorry, Colin. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Don't make any more claims about him. <laughs> Absolutely not. I never will again. I kind of... Can I, like, look this up just real quick? I'm just curious to see if he's a real-life villain or not. Because I do like his acting. <laughs> yeah, he's in some awesome movies. Uh, I did not like the Total Recall remake, though. I thought that that was, uh, seemed superfluous and unnecessary. Total so, Recall. Yeah, I was kind of bummed. Honestly, Like, I feel like if you're going to remake any Paul Verhoeven movie, you're already way behind the train. Like, He only makes perfect masterpieces. Well, like trying have... to remake Starship Troopers would be a, a huge disappointment. Yeah. Yep. Um, hey, I do have a, a little piece of... I, I don't know. I don't want to call this good news, but I don't think mm-hmm. we could get sued for uh, libel. Um, the first thing that came up when I searched for Colin Farrell domestic abuse was an article from 2015. The headline is, Colin Farrell was arrested for attempted murder. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who did he try to kill? <laughs> Let's see. Acting Colin Farrell was taken into police custody as a teenager on suspicion of attempted murder um jesus uh, i don't know a, a man in an apartment fire i'm not sure but then there's a wikipedia about a, a lawsuit filed against his ex-girlfriend an american model um you know i i think we're okay i think we're on on safe grounds i i think he found the help that he he needed though 
We're going to say that. And now he's, he's one of the most recognizable and highly paid people in the entire world. Yeah. But still, the bullseye, that was definitely the worst thing he ever did. A misstep. A misstep, if you will. for sure. That was, uh, <laughs> the first that was right up there with him almost murdering that person. <laughs> we are going to... Going to the hell of Hell's Kitchen. That's where Daredevil lives. So, so we'll be in good company. <laughs> absolutely. So, Josh, we, we talk about this uh, every other episode, I'd say. A, a superhero story needs a supervillain story. And there might not be any villain as capable as Kingpin. He is such an incredibly capable evildoer. We don't even really see the end of his story at the end of the series because... He just holds so many cards. He controls so many people. He's always prepared. He's always outsmarting everyone around him. I mean, he's playing three-dimensional chess, while even the smart people around him are playing checkers by comparison. On top of his sheer brilliance as a manipulator, communicator, and leader, he is physically capable as an antagonist. He He towers over others. He doesn't even need to lift a finger to intimidate his enemies. But when he does decide to engage, he dishes out absolutely bone-shattering, rage-fueling beatdowns with his fists, his head, and his entire freaking body, man. Just lays on you. Oh, my God. <laughs> he's truly such a good villain, and he's so well depicted by Vincent Donofrio. <laughs> no? Donofrio. <laughs> Donofrio. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. You know, I'm learning so much about Arizona right now. I learned it's Tempe, not Tempe. I learned yeah. it's uh, uh, Saguaro National Forest, not Cigarro. I'm really up okay. in my Arizona game, buddy. So this is just on that same vein. You're a cunning linguist. Vincent Donofrio. <laughs> no? Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> Vincent's depiction. I mean, it's so well. V-Dog. V-Dog. <laughs> Vito. So Vito actually put on 20 pounds for this role to look more comic book accurate. And spoiler alert, big spoiler alert, he actually makes an epic appearance at the end of Hawkeye as a baddie. Pulling, oh, man. Pulling lots of strings from behind the scenes. Just so as that's a crossover then from the, Marvel, from the Netflix series into Disney proper. Josh? A hundred percent, it's a crossover, and there has been some debate online, all the nerds getting out online arguing about this, but V-Dog has said in multiple interviews that he is absolutely playing the same character in the same universe. This has been 100% confirmed, so I don't care what other rumors you hear. This is a, absolutely a crossover, same character. Awesome. Awesome is right. So, uh, so between Matt Murdock... Uh, oh, another spoiler alert. Gotta hit the pause button. Another spoiler alert. So between Matt Murdock appearing in No Way Home as Spider-Man's attorney and Kingpin popping up in this as this incredibly scary giant, you know, Kingpin in Hawkeye, it's bringing me to my conclusion for this episode. The story of Netflix Marvel's Daredevil is not over. We have seen the same characters and the same casting appearing from one of my all-time favorite marvel shows all-time netflix favorite netflix show and just like downright all-time favorite show ever and we've seen it appearing on a disney plus series we've seen it in the marvel marvel cinematic universe seeing these moments it made my heart all a flutter 
It was truly a feast for my eye holes both times that it happened. <laughs> and because I think your desire to see Disney's marvelously Marvel-tastic universe take on grittier, darker, more brutal, and more violent stories, I think it's just around the corner, buddy. We have seen the success of characters like Deadpool. I mean, they may have been testing the waters. Like, can a rated R Marvel superhero movie be as successful as the others when you limit the size of your audience by depicting content that's really only appropriate for adults? The answer is fucking obviously. (laughs) Anybody can stream it. (laughs) Exactly. That's for sure. It's a yes. I mean, that was one of the most successful movies of all time. Like... I think of the Avengers Endgame. This is we saw Thanos beheaded. Like he his literally his head was removed from his body. Now some, fairly bloodless though. It was, and that's probably how they still pulled out a PG-13 rating, but I mean they were carefully writing the line. You know, maybe some uh maybe like Disney has a team of bribers that was like slipping some cash to the rating department. Who knows. And they always get their one shit in. <laughs> Because they can, that's the line they can ride to for PG 13. Is it no F word? No, no F word. No F word. That's, that's you get that one, that one shit allotment. Once you turn 14, kids, then you can hear the F bomb. Yep. Sorry. Until then, it's nothing but shit for you. This is all day, every day. (laughs) This is why our our podcast is rated explicit. All the F bombs (laughs) we'd be dropping. Yeah. So, Josh, if the MCU is embracing Daredevil in more than one format, then that means. Punisher, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, all these ground-level, darker vigilantes have a place in our beloved MCU. They exist. So to wrap up, watch this damn show, you dummies. You don't have to be... (laughs) Wait, I I like this line. I I want you to listen to this. You don't have to be a fighter to be a lover of the fighting in this lovely fight show that I love so much. (laughs) (laughs) Brett loves this show about love that he loves to love. So, Disney, let's make Marvel more grown up. Your fans are older. They're wiser. They want to watch Charlie Cox and his stunt double, Chris Brewster, wrap their arms with ropes to beat the ever-loving shit out of child molesters and arms dealers. Pretty pleased with the cherry on top. So let me end on a totally unrelated quote from one of the final moments of Season 3. It highlights Matt Murdock's growth and reconnection with spirituality. And, uh, oh, by the way, this is something I didn't mention, but I absolutely love uh, this aspect of the show. These religious undertones and overtones in the series. I mean, Matt Murdock, he is raised a devout Catholic. He finds guidance as a violent vigilante from a priest who knew him as a child, who knows the secret identity. And yet this, like, good Catholic attorney spends his nights dressed as a devil, railing on criminals. I just... I love that aspect of the story. That makes sense. Sure. That's, that's a seems like the iconography you would lean towards if you wanted to inspire terror if you're raised as a Catholic. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I love it. Okay, well, I love this parting quote. I feel like it's very applicable to my life and just everyone's life in general. <clears throat> God's plan is like a beautiful tapestry, and the tragedy of being human is that we only get to see it from the back with all the ragged threads and the muddy colors. And we only get a hint at the true beauty that would be revealed if we could only see the whole pattern on the other side, as God does. So be 
like a god and watch Daredevil, the Netflix Marvel series. Oh, so yes. good. Awesome. It's so good, buddy. That's all I got for you. That's great. Uh, this definitely makes me want to go back and watch it and uh, watch season three, which I have not seen. In fact, I didn't even know there was a season three. Uh, so thank you for that. I do, while we're on this uh, Vincent D'Onofrio train, I do have to let you know that it's vigilante, not vigilante. Just have to throw that in there. <laughs> Tempe, tempe, tomato, tomato. It's a day to learn. Um, Wait, what was I? I was saying vigilante, right? Vigilante? Yeah. Vigilante. 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 Why does that sound so I'm, Americanized and butchered? I don't know. I'm from Texas. But uh, all that aside, <laughs> this I'm, does give me I'm hope. The, I'm the king of saying things wrong. It's amazing. That's true. Kingpin. Yeah, the, the kingpin of mispronunciation. The, the, yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. This does give me hope that we will one day get to see Punisher in the MCU proper. That would be amazing. And, I mean, those two characters are so intimately connected yeah, uh, it seems like a pretty obvious step. I know John Bernthal wouldn't do it unless they do it the right way. He's been quoted as saying that. So hopefully this is all kind of opening the door towards that kind of content. And yes, you accomplished your mission. I'm definitely going to go watch Daredevil seasons right. one through three. All right. And it's been long enough that I don't remember much about it, you know, other than like broad strokes. So it'll kind of be like watching it with new eyes. Absolutely. I'm very excited, buddy. So thank you for all of your hard work pulling this outline together. I appreciate it. I'm sure the audience appreciates it as well. And we appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for listening to the show every other week now when we release them. Uh, <laughs> we we appreciate all of our listeners. And uh, you probably noticed this show is going a little bit long. I have a feeling that now that we're not doing the show as often, we'll probably be putting a little bit of extra work into it. So I hope you also enjoy a bit more content out of this show because I think the, the episodes will probably start stretching out a bit. Um, so if you have anything that you'd like to tell us, correct us on, uh, tell us about content that you love, things that we should be watching, contact, contact us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. Also, uh, you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram at The Content Clearinghouse. We always put some good stuff up there and we'll be back in just a couple of weeks with more content to jam into your ear holes. Wait, did you say you're going to play things? <laughs> yes, while I was on break, I did a little bit of research. And uh, first, I'm going to play this. This is a uh, vigilante <laughs> pronunciation. Damn it, Josh. Vigilante. Vigilante. <laughs> All right. Vigilante. You, you didn't have to play it again, for God's sakes. Well, okay, so Try then I looked up, I looked up D'Onofrio pronunciation. All right. And this is what I found. <laughs> Here we go. Pronouncenames.com. Donofrio. <laughs> what the hell? Donofrio. There you go. Wow, I really was missing. Donofrio. We were both wrong. Wow. No kidding. <laughs> From now on, V Dog will be known as Vincent Donofrio. <laughs> That's hilarious.